Welcome to MD Notified, a pediatrics podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Christine Sufchuk, and today we're going to be talking about dyslipidemia. We are joined by Dr. Allison Pirick, who is a future pediatric cardiologist. Thank you, Dr. Pirick, for joining us. Hello. Thanks for having me. She is going to help us kind of work through dyslipidemia management, both from a general primary care perspective, as well as from a pediatric cardiologist point of view. So let's start off the episode with a case. We have a 10-year-old male who presents for his first well visit with you in primary care pediatrics clinic. He has a past medical history of asthma, and he's on albuterol as needed. He also has a family history of myocardial infarction in his paternal grandfather at the age of 50, and his mother is obese. The patient also has a BMI at the 90th percentile, and his blood pressure is borderline high. You decide to order a fasting lipid panel for screening, and these are the results. He has a total cholesterol of 200, an LDL of 150, an HDL of 30, and a triglyceride level of 160. What do these results mean, and what are we going to do next? Perfect. So we are going to talk about how to manage this patient and what you are going to do with these results through this episode. Mm Mm-hmm. So we can start by talking about dyslipidemia in general and the epidemiology of it. So atherosclerosis, as we all know, starts at a young age. We can see it in autopsy specimens at the age of like 10 or so in many children. We know that cardiovascular disease is the number one cause of death in adults in the U.S. and its presence is increasing in children and adolescents as well. About 13% of adolescents have hyperlipidemia, and those with complicating medical conditions, such as obesity, diabetes, hypertension, are on the rise. In addition to cholesterol, we always have to think about triglycerides as well, and about 11% of adolescents have high triglyceride levels. Yeah, so that's a lot of kids. Yeah, and it's just on the rise, like we were saying, as, you know, obesity and all these other medical conditions are more prevalent in our teens. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think what's interesting is kind of understanding how these things actually come to be in our bodies and sort of the pathogenesis of dyslipidemia. Um, so when you eat a fatty food, you ingest it and your intestinal cells start to break that food down. Those fat products get absorbed in chylomicrons, which contain triglycerides and cholesterols from the food that you just ate, and those are absorbed through the intestinal cells, and they move on to your bloodstream. Once they're in your systemic circulation, they join with apolipoproteins, which then bind to LPL receptors on endothelial cells, which is um, how your cells take those fats from the chylomicrons and convert it into energy for fuel. Alternatively, those chylomicrons can be out in your systemic blood circulation and can be converted into intermediate forms that include things like LDL cholesterol. Exactly. I mean, it's a very complex process of how your body uses fuel, but it's a great overview of sort of why we care about this and where those things that we order in labs come from. Right. So speaking of labs... um, There are a few screening guidelines that we follow based on the AAP recommendations. And this is to do both universal screening and targeted screening. So in universal screening, 
It is recommended that all children aged 9 to 11 years old or prior to the start of puberty, and then again, all children aged 17 to 21 years old have a non-fasting lipid panel checked at one point. Mm-hmm. And in addition to that, we have recommendations for targeted screening. Targeted screening occurs more in high-risk individuals uh, between the age of two and eight years. This is recommended for children who are at higher risk, and that includes patients who have a positive family history of dyslipidemia, high-level risk factors, or high-risk medical conditions. And when we do targeted screening, in contrast to universal screening, we would order those patients a fasting lipid panel as opposed to a non-fasting lipid panel, which is what you would order in a patient who you're doing universal screening on. Yeah, exactly. And some of those things that make you want to order this targeted screening, like you were just talking about, so family history, um, that includes dyslipidemia in a first-degree relative or premature cardiovascular disease, which is cardiovascular disease before the age of 55 in males or before the age of 65 in females. In addition, individuals can have high-level risk factors, and that includes obesity, which is defined as a BMI greater than the 95th percentile for age, hypertension, cigarette smoking, which is like the number one risk factor, but thankfully we don't have to deal with that as much as in our patients, (laughs) Um, as well as anorexia, steroid use, especially chronic steroid use, and diabetes. Mm-hmm. And then they can also have like high risk medical conditions that are beyond these. So things such as organ transplants, lupus, nephrotic syndrome, or beyond a protease inhibitor treatment for another medical condition. Mm-hmm. It's also interesting and good to know that testing is indicated for dyslipidemia at any age um, with new high risk medical factors or medical conditions. So for example, if you have a child who is, let's say 15 years of age and they develop a high risk medical condition like diabetes, or they become obese or they start cigarette smoking, um, it would also be indicated to test that patient at that time, um, because they are now in a more high risk category. Yeah, exactly. Because you want to you wanna catch this early. So that's exactly um, what you would want to do for those patients. Mm-hmm. And so when you're doing this, either universal screening with a non-fasting lipid panel or targeted screening with a fasting lipid panel, what, kinds of, what kind of test results are you expecting to come back? Yeah, so this moves into more of like how do we actually diagnose hyperlipidemia in children? Um, So that is based on your LDL level, which is one of the labs that will come back when you send a lipid panel. And they are diagnosed as having hyperlipidemia if their LDL level is greater than 130. Um, The other markers that you'll get in that lipid panel vary a little bit, but you'll always also have a total cholesterol. And the cutoff level for that is greater than 200 is high. You'll also have an HDL level, and anything less than 40 is low. And then you'll also get triglycerides. And so this is a little bit different based on their age, but anyone younger than 10 or sort of younger than pubertal um, pubertal age, a level greater than 100 is high. And anyone from 10 to 20, anything greater than 130 is high. 
I will say the triglycerides can vary a lot um, compared to the cholesterol levels. So if your patient has a non-fasting lipid panel and they just ate a whole stack of chocolate chip pancakes with maple syrup all over and butter, <laughs> their triglyceride level is probably going to be quite high. Um, but if they then come back five days later and had eaten their normal diet and have a fasting level, that'll be more reflective of where they generally are. Okay. Whereas your cholesterol levels reflect more of a long-term weeks to months, um, status of your nutrition and intake. Gotcha. So always take your triglyceride levels with a grain of salt. Yes. Especially on non-fasting tests. On non-fasting yep. tests. Okay. Yep. Got it. Got it. And I think it's also interesting to point out that we want patients to have elevated or higher levels of HDL, but mm -hmm. we don't want them to have high levels of LDL. Yeah. HDL is known to be sort of a protective um, cholesterol that is good for you. Mm -hmm. and we want it to be anywhere 45 or above. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So if it's low, it's bad. Yep. Okay. Got it. Um, and so for dyslipidemia, we can kind of subcategorize these patients into those who have dyslipidemia from a primary cause, such as genetic defects, which would be defects in lipid synthesis and lipid metabolism, and then patients who have dyslipidemia from secondary causes, which kind of are a result of other medical conditions, such as the ones that we've discussed, like uncontrolled diabetes, nephrotic syndrome, chronic steroid use, obesity, things like that. Yeah, exactly. And so we can talk a little bit about some of the primary causes of hyperlipidemia because some of these are actually pretty common and you will see these in your practice. And we know quite a bit already about the secondary causes and we can talk about treatment for that in a little while. So mm -hmm. the most common um, form of genetic hyperlipidemia is actually familial combined hyperlipidemia. And that occurs in 0.5 to 1% of the population in general. And we don't totally understand what causes this, but we know that it's a complex genetic disorder. Um, it's common to run in families, although there's not like a specific inheritance pattern. And children are typically asymptomatic from it. The next most common is called familial hyperlipidemia, and that is due to mutations in the LDL receptor gene. So if you remember, the LDL receptor is important for LDL to be brought into cells and utilized. So without that, LDL can be circulating throughout the body more. So there's both the heterozygous and homozygous form of that. For the heterozygous form, they have some working LDL receptors. Um, so those patients are typically asymptomatic, especially in the like adolescent age. And that is present in one in 200 to 500 people. So quite common. That's really common. Yeah. Like you will definitely see this in, you know, outpatient primary care. Okay. Whereas the homozygous form is much more rare. It's about one in 160,000 people. And you will know if your patient has this or has a genetic form because they will develop xanthomas or those like subcutaneous lipid collections mm -hmm. in their adolescent years. And what do those look like? So those look like sort of little outcroppings or, you know, big papules on the skin. Um, and they're skin colored uh, and they'll have lots of them. Okay. Um, and these ones aren't necessarily at a specific part of their body. Um, whereas some of the disorders that we'll talk about in a little bit can be at a specific area. Okay. 
Um, more rare, but also um, something that you'll see is LPL deficiency. And this leads to accumulation of chylomicrons in your internal organs. So that's because your chylomicrons aren't able to be broken down into other things. So they just circulate and then um, tend to deposit in your like liver, kidneys, pancreas, um, heart. So can cause some issues there. Mm-hmm. So what about triglycerides? Yeah. So like we were talking about, triglycerides can be high from a lot of like dietary things, Mm -hmm. but there is a genetic disorder called familial hypertriglyceridemia, and that is an autosomal dominant disorder. Um, Patients have a normal LDL, but they have very elevated triglycerides, typically around a thousand or so, which I don't think we talked about this, but you can actually see that when you draw their blood. Their blood is usually like milky or just looks very different. Yeah. So if you see that when you draw someone's blood, that's a red flag. And you didn't order a yellow flag. (laughs) You should (laughs) order triglycerides, order a lipid panel. Um, and these patients are usually identified when they present with pancreatitis. So, um, you'll have a patient come into the ED vomiting, really bad abdominal pain. You'll draw their blood and you'll be like, Whoa, that looks weird. Mm -hmm. And you can identify it that way. And then lastly, um, we can get back to those xanthomas that we were talking about. So dysbeta-lipoproteinemia is a rare disorder, but something to be noted. So it's a homozygous apoprotein E disorder leading to increased levels of everything. So chylomicrons, triglycerides, and cholesterol levels. And this one is something that presents with xanthomas on your palmar creases, so on your hands. Um, in childhood. And these kids are known to have earlier atherosclerosis um, in childhood as well and earlier development of cardiovascular disease. Okay. So that kind of covers the genetic causes of hyperlipidemia. Would you say when you're in pediatric cardiology clinic, most patients who come in Do they have a genetic component, or would you say it's mostly, like, lifestyle-related? Yeah, so typically um, the patients have one of those secondary causes, so either lifestyle-related or comorbidity-related. Gotcha. But these are the things that you have to be sort of watching out for because these are your patients that are going to have a higher lifetime risk of cardiovascular disease. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So going back to our case, um, we had a patient who was a 10-year-old male, He did have a couple comorbidities. He was um, at an elevated BMI. His mother was obese. He had a family history of myocardial infarction, which could tip you off that maybe there was some genetic component. We're not really sure. Um, But regardless, we were uh, worried about this patient, and and we ordered this lipid panel on him, and he ended up with an LDL of 150. As we've discussed, the LDL is really the the defining factor um, out of all the values that you'll get on your lipid panel, and that's going to really dictate your management. We already talked about how a level of 130 is kind of our upper limit of normal, and so since our case patient has a level of 150, we really have to start thinking about our next steps for him. So what would you, how would you advise this, this family moving forward? Yeah, definitely. So based on our labs and his comorbidities, we definitely need to implement some kind of treatment. So Mm -hmm. where do we start with that? Um, This is a great place for a primary care physician. um, And 
it's really a lifestyle change, not just for the patient, but I try and get the whole family involved, especially in a 10 year old. Like he's not in charge of what he buys at the grocery store Right. Or his computer time or right. anything. The 10-year-old um, is not holding the purse strings. Exactly. <laughs> as, as far as we know. Yeah. <laughs> um, so as we sort of mentioned, the, the basis of treatment, especially initially, is lifestyle modification. So this is a great um, start of treatment. And oftentimes, this is all that patients need, which is awesome. He doesn't need medications or anything else. So this is twofold. Number one, dietary modifications. So we want him to decrease his fat and sugar intake so that he's not bringing in those things that turn into cholesterol or LDL in the body mm-hmm. um, so that those levels come down. And that also is avoiding some of the trans fats. Some practices will have nutritionists or dietitians that patients can meet with, and they can give them sort of a breakdown of exactly where they need to make changes. But I think that the most important thing is working with them, working with the family and the patient to determine what are manageable changes that they can do because you need the buy-in from them. You can tell them to change their whole diet completely and they're going to come back in a few months and not have changed anything because it wasn't realistic. Right. You need realistic baby steps. Yep. Decrease your fat intake, decrease your sugar intake, and kind of in whatever way is manageable for that family. Yeah. I think we notice from our clinics a lot, my favorite one to do is like just decrease your soda intake. Right. Like, instead of having three a day, let's go to one. And right. then after that, we can be like, let's have this once a week. Right. Um, and that can make a huge difference. So totally. So baby steps, manageable goals are great. Mm-hmm. And then the other um, step to this is increased physical activity. So the recommendation is that kids have 30 to 60 minutes of physical activity six days a week. Those are really the big things. And then, you know, I really like to give them at least a good six-month trial of these lifestyle changes. This kid's LDL level is not that much above the upper limit. Mm-hmm. Um, it's only 150. He can really decrease that to a normal level with good lifestyle changes. So giving them a good, good trial of that. Right. So from a primary care standpoint, if you have this patient who comes in and you recommend lifestyle modification and you follow this patient through like a six-month trial period with the lifestyle changes recheck it and it's still elevated, Mm -hmm. I would say at that point, you're ready for referral. Yeah, exactly. Like you have done the things that you can do for them and they've done those things. And now it's time to ask a specialist. Um, so in some places like where we're practicing, that's cardiology, some places that's endocrinology. So knowing your local practice patterns, um, but referring there for consideration of medical therapy. Mm -hmm. And what would that medical therapy be? Yeah, so there's a ton of options, and, you know, the adult world knows a lot more about this than we do, but (laughs) we can talk about sort of the initial thing that you would start for kids and that your patients might be on, which would be a statin. Um, Statins work by decreasing LDL cholesterol and triglyceride levels, and they also work by increasing your HDL levels or that good cholesterol. Um, The goal with statin therapy is to get your LDL level down, um, and that'll be through sort of increasing doses or even changing statins sometimes, but the overall written goal is less than 140, but really trying to get it normal is where you want to be. And then the big thing is statins aren't indicated before the age of eight. They are not FDA approved for that. Thankfully, 
we don't have that many kids that young that need them. Mm -hmm. Um, And then some of the adverse effects that you might see as, as the pediatrician. So say that, you know, your patient came to me in cardiology clinic. I started him on a statin. You see him two weeks later and he's like, oh my gosh, like I've been taking this medication, but my legs have been hurting so bad since I haven't been able to like run around and play soccer. The most common adverse effect is myopathy or muscle pain. So that would be an indication to call us up and be like, hey, this is what's going on and probably stopping that and changing medications. Gotcha. And then also noting that it's teratogenic because fetuses need cholesterol to make cell membranes in all their cells. Um, So do not have a pregnant patient taking statins. Right. Contraindicated in pregnancy. Yep. Exactly. Um, And then lastly, it's great um, to think about monitoring. So in these patients, they get labs typically about every three to six months um, just to monitor their levels. And like we talked about, the LDL takes a little bit longer to change. So we like to give them a good, good amount of time to see those positive changes. So in summary, I think that the most high yield points that we've learned in this episode are that we really do need to be doing universal screening for dyslipidemia in our patients between the ages of 9 to 11 years and 17 to 21 years. And we do that with a non-fasting lipid panel. In patients who are higher risk, targeted screening happens with a fasting lipid panel, and that occurs in patients who have a positive family history or positive comorbidities. We direct our dyslipidemia management really mostly with the LDL level. So despite the fact that you get multiple different levels on your lipid panel, the one that we're really going to be looking out for is your LDL. And the definition of an elevated LDL in a pediatric patient is a level of 130 or higher. Above that management, we want to proceed with lifestyle changes, modification, dietary changes, and then after a period of time, right around six months, If we recheck it and it's still abnormal, at that point we would refer to a cardiologist or an endocrinologist for further management, kind of depending on the community that you practice in. Exactly. So remember to screen your patients and I'll always be happy to see them in clinic if you're worried about them. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for joining us. I think we really learned a lot. Again, thank you for listening. This is MD Notified and we will see you next week. Thanks for listening to MD Notified, a pediatric podcast. References to the information sourced in this episode can be found in the Quick Notes outline, which is available on mdnotified.com. The contributors to MD Notified have no financial disclosures or conflicts of interest. The views, information, or opinions expressed are solely those of the individuals in today's episode and do not represent any other organizations or its employees. The primary purpose of this podcast is to inform and educate. This podcast does not constitute medical or professional advice or services. If you are a member of the general public and have questions, please make an appointment with your local board-certified pediatrician.